This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. You can take a metaphor of Scripture and you can chew on it. You can ruminate on it. You can think about it literally forever. And I suppose that's a lot of what we will do forever. And you can pull on a thread of one of these metaphors, one of these pictures of Scripture, and you can keep on pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and never get to the end. Sometimes the images of the Bible seem contradictory or at least in competition with one another. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd and the sheep. He is the king and the suffering servant. He's the priest and the sacrifice, the lion and the lamb. He is David's Lord and David's Son. He is the way, the truth, the life, the bread, the wine, the water, the vine, the light, the door. We could spend eternity chewing on any one of those pictures. And the Bible also uses striking metaphors for the church. The church is the household of God. It's the pillar and support of the truth. It's the flock of God, the temple of God, the body of Christ, the mother of the faithful, and the bride of Christ. Those last two titles for the church are the ones we've come together to think about this weekend. The church is the mother of the faithful, Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free, she is our mother, that's the church. And the church is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. Pastor Carell is going to talk about the church as our mother tomorrow. Here's what the brochure says about tonight, about this sermon. It says, the church is the bride, of Je- the bride Jesus laid his life down to save and to secure for himself. In this covenant relationship, he is the head and she is the body. What does this mysterious union mean? How should the relationship between Jesus and the church shape the way we think, the way we worship, and the way we live together. Now, as is uncommon in conference um, sermons, I'm actually going to try to do just that. (laughs) A lot of, I've been to so many conferences where what you read in the brochure and what actually happens are like, had nothing to do with one another, but I'm going to try to do this. So first of all, The church is, in fact, the bride of Christ. Let's lay that down biblically. Revelation 19, 1 to 9. And after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. This passage really has cosmic consequences that I'll get to in a little while. But for now, just notice that the church is in fact called the bride of Christ, clothed in fine, bright, clean linen, ready for her wedding. Revelation 21 says something similar. This is Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The church, the new Jerusalem, is our mother, and it's also the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, then of course, Ephesians chapter five. So listen, read along with me as I, or read with me as I read Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, or 22 to 33. This is the passage that we're all so familiar with when we think of Jesus and the church as his bride. So Revelation 5.22, I'm sorry, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, that's where the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. How should we understand this image of the church as the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb? Well, let me open up a few things. Let me kind of unpack a few things from what we've just read. First of all, this is not a new image. This is not something new in the New Testament, this whole idea of a group of people being the bride. It comes straight from the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets allude to Israel as the wife of Jehovah, but the most extended description of that is in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is not only an extended description of this, it's actually very graphic. And we will never understand what it means for the church to be the bride of Christ if we don't understand Ezekiel 16. So I'm going to read this to you, and it's long but I guarantee you the content will probably keep you awake. 
Ezekiel 16, 1 to 34. Listen to this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day when you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. I married you, in other words. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril. That's where you get it, all you women. Where was I? Put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. 
that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make, to make me angry. Behold now, I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. And I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you are not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus you are different. This is the same reality with the nation of Israel that the book of Hosea is about. The harlot wife. The wicked unfaithful, adulterous, impure, immodest, slutty wife that is Israel. It's against that backdrop that we read in the New Testament about a new bride, the church. But she's not a harlot. She is clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. She is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. She is sanctified, cleansed by the washing of water with the word. Jesus Christ, her husband, presents her to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. When we read all of that, we should immediately be struck with the contrast between harlot Israel and the pure bride, the church. We'll never catch the glory of the pure bride, the church, until we see it against the backdrop of Israel and her harlotry. And of course, the contrast is not that Israel is inherently bad and the church is inherently good. No, the church needs to be sanctified, washed, cleansed, clothed. Why? Because we are all wicked, dirty, and naked. And the thing to see in this contrast between harlot Israel and bride church is the mercy and the power and the love and the grace of Christ the bridegroom. This is one of the glories of the new covenant in Christ's blood. He makes us faithful. He 
causes the church to be a pure and spotless bride. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints. It was given to her. So that's the first thing. We can't understand any of this church as the bride of Christ until we understand Israel as the wife of Jehovah, the harlot. And the church is something glorious in comparison. Secondly, another key to understand the church as the bride of Christ is the nature of Christ's headship. All the way back in Genesis 2.24, we read this. It's what's in every wedding ceremony that's faithful. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does that have to do with Christ and the church? It has everything to do with Christ and the church. The church is what? It's the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body of the church. The relationship between a husband and his wife is that of one flesh. And that is exactly the same relationship that exists between Jesus and his bride. It's the relationship of a head and a body, of one flesh. And that is the main point of Ephesians 5. We all know that Ephesians 5 is filled with commands and exhortations and instructions to husbands and wives. And we all know that the relationship between husband and wife is patterned after something much more glorious and much more mysterious. It's patterned after the relationship of Christ and the church. But the main point of contact in Ephesians 5, the main point of similarity between husband and wife and Christ and the church is the reality of one flesh. Let me read this to you again. Notice this over and over again. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he being the Savior of the body. Head and body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as what? As their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, and he quotes Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. In other words, that's, when, when Moses wrote Genesis 2.24, yes, he's certainly talking about Adam and Eve. Yes, he's talking about husband and wife, but he's talking about something bigger than that. He's talking about Christ and the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, just like Christ and the church has become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Do you see this? The main point here 
is that a husband and a wife are one flesh, like Genesis 2.24 says, a husband and a wife are one flesh. Why? Because Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, are one flesh. The husband is the head of this new body. He is the head of his wife. And a husband is the head of his wife because he is patterned after Jesus Christ, the head of the church. This is indeed a great mystery, as Paul says. It goes beyond the depths of our fathoming. Jesus Christ is intimately bound to the church. Think of this. Intimately bound to the church, so closely bound that it says the church is his very body. The church is one flesh with him. The church is his body, the body that it says he nourishes and cherishes. Brothers and sisters, that's what this mysterious union means. It means that when Saul is persecuting the church, do you remember? And the Lord Jesus comes to him. The Lord Jesus, the good husband, intervenes, strikes him down and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you remember? You touch my wife, you touch me. Why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Christ because they are in fact one flesh. Now let's think about the implications of that mystical union. How should the relationship between Jesus and the church shape the way we think, the way we worship, the way we live together? First of all, how should it shape the way we think? Well, the short answer is that it should totally reshape the way we think about literally everything. Literally everything. The union of Christ and the church has cosmic consequences. In other words, this is a reality that God has built into the world, the cosmos, as a whole. The history of the world begins with the creation of a man. Not the creation of a woman, and not the creation of an androgynous person, but the creation of a man, Adam. And then, what does God do to Adam? He puts him to sleep. He makes him sleep, a very deep sleep, like the sleep of death. And he pierces his side, and out of the wound forms a woman. And God takes this woman, and he gives her to Adam to be his bride. Right? The history of the world culminates when God sends another man, the second Adam. And God causes the second Adam to sleep, the sleep of death. And he pierces his side. And from the wound, God makes a bride for his son. The first Adam is the head of his people, mankind, the human race. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is the head of his people, the church. This is the nature of reality. This is how everything is built. God the Father made everything to revolve around headship, body, marriage, one flesh. God made the history of the world ultimately to consummate with a wedding feast. 
that we read about in Revelation 19. It all begins that way and it ends that way. And everything in between is about that. And this teaches all kinds of things about everything. For example, God created marriage. It is not a cultural construct. It is not a human institution. It cannot be redefined. God made it. And he made marriage to be a picture of Christ and the church. That's what marriage is for. With all of these metaphors, with all of these analogies of Scripture, we have to be careful to get the direction right. I mean, which thing is being compared to what? Which came first? Which is the example and which is the reality? In other words, which came first, marriage between a man and a woman or the marriage between Christ and his bride? Which one of those will last forever? Which came first, the light that our eyes see or the light of the world? Which came first, the bread that we ate for supper or the bread of life that comes from heaven? Or which came first, the water in the plumbing pipes or the water of life? All of these earthly things are dim images of the reality, Jesus Christ, the architect and the blueprint of all creation. Creation, remember, is made by him and for him. He made a world with these particular things in it so that we could see him and his glory and so it is with marriage. God made it to teach us about Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, the head of the body, and about the church, the bride, the spotless and pure wife of the Lamb. And that's why the attempt to cast off the cords of God's law concerning marriage is completely vain. It can't be done. You can't redefine the nature of reality, no matter how hard you try. No state legislature, no Supreme Court can redefine the nature of reality. It can't be done. You can't pass a law that says down is now up. Gravity from here on out is going to function in reverse. We decreed it. You can't pass a law that says mammals will now have gills and fish will now have lungs. We decreed it. We altered the nature of reality with our law. It can't be done no matter how much they try. No man can redefine the nature of marriage because man didn't make it, God made it. And he made it for a reason, and it is what it is. This also teaches us more, about just, more than just about marriage itself. Think about this with me for just a minute. God himself in Scripture, consistently reveals himself as masculine. Now, that's a controversial statement, but I believe it's biblically true. 
Uh, there's a book uh, by a man who was here last year, uh, Father Bill Mauser, out in Texas, called The Story of Sex and Scripture, and if you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. Uh, God reveals himself as masculine. And if God is masculine, and this is funny because I too am going to quote C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis puts it this way in one of my favorite books, That Hideous Strength, where he says, all creation, if God is masculine, all creation is feminine by comparison. And I think he's right. So this is another reason that homosexuality is a violation of nature itself. Think about this. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul declares that homosexuality is against nature. Why? Is homosexuality against nature just on the level that any plumber would understand? Or any electrician? You understand? The parts have to fit together. They have to fit together. I mean, is that, is that the, simply the level at which it's against nature? It's certainly true, and the, the actual physical nature of body parts is there and irrefutable, but there's something even more basic than that. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul directly links homosexuality with idolatry. Here it is, Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. What is the relationship between idolatry and homosexuality? Is it just a random thing? Is, is it a random judgment of God on idolater, idolaters? No. Homosexuality is idolatry. Flip it around. Idolatry is homosexuality. If God is masculine and the creation is feminine, then what do you call the creature worshiping the creation? It's the creature worshiping itself. It's homo worship. It's same worship. The creature worshiping the creation. And sexuality is always connected to worship. And so the natural, actually unnatural, but the natural expression of creature worship, of homo worship, is homo sex. Sex with self, with same. True worship is the worship of that which is different. True worship is hetero worship, by definition. True worship is the creature not worshiping another creature, same, but the creature worshiping the creator, who is blessed forever, amen, who is other. 
totally other. Which is why heterosexuality is in accordance with the nature of reality and homosexuality is against the nature of reality. It's why idolatry and homosexuality always go together. So the reality of Christ in the church opens up for us. I just, I just pulled a few things out of there. It just opens up for us right ways of thinking about everything. And there's so much more to say and to think, and I, I encourage you to think. Now, what's the second question in the brochure's description? The second one is, how should the relationship between Jesus and the church shape the way we worship? There's too much to say here, so I'll keep this very short. Contemplating the bridegroom and his bride should make us fall down in worship. We are, by nature, a part of this world, the great harlot. But Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, died to sanctify, to purify, and cleanse, and to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and blameless. This is what happens when people see this, they worship. This is what's going on in Revelation 19. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let's rejoice, hallelujah, let's rejoice and give glory to him because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. This is cause for loud eternal worship. But there's more in this truth regarding our worship here and now, not just in eternity, but here and now. Many in the history of the church have seen this image of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride as a personal, individual reality. In other words, Jesus is my husband. I am his bride. My soul, personally, individually, is married to Jesus. This is called bridal mysticism. It's been very popular through the ages, starting especially in the 12th century with a good man, a man that Calvin quotes second only, I think, to Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux. He's a good man, but he started something that has gotten weird. He didn't really start it, but he popularized it. A whole lot of modern worship music comes from this mindset. Worship is seen as at, at its pinnacle, as its ultimate, as a sacred swoon, you know, uh, in which Jesus romances your soul. So it's about how I feel, how romantic I feel towards Jesus, how romantic does he feel towards me. It, you know, he is, as one worship song puts it, he stoops down with a big sloppy kiss. Very popular worship song. And some of the imagery of that becomes sexual, inappropriate, and weird. And the problem is that you and I are not individually brides of Christ. Jesus has one bride, the church. Jesus is not a Mormon. He's not a polygamist. He has one bride. Not 200 or 2 million. 
The bride of Christ is a corporate reality, not an individual reality. So men, you are not a bride married to a man, Jesus. I'm glad to let you know. You and I are in fact, men, members corporately of a feminine body, the church. But that shouldn't bother you. It should not make you feel weird at all because men have been happily, securely, masculinely part of feminine institutions and feminine realities, larger feminine realities since the the beginning of the world. Um, Men think of the the motherland, right? We think of our cities. If you think of the language that we use for cities, it's always feminine. We think of these cities that we create and are part of as feminine. Think of rough sailors. Think of Joe Rice, Captain Rice, on their ships. The ships are always what? They're feminine. Always. They are always she's. You know, so even in Star Trek, it's Scotty saying, she can't take anymore, Captain. You know, she. Now, why are, here's a thought that I had. It might be crazy, but why are ships feminine? Ships are feminine because they do what women do. They bear. We even use the same words. They bear things. They carry in their womb. It's what ships do. It's what women do. No, it's not a problem for us all to be men and women together, members of this corporate reality, this bride, this feminine, beautiful bride. But we are not individually brides of Christ. We are individually sons and daughters of the church, our mother. That's where it gets individual. Individual sons of God. Sons of the church. But we'll get to that tomorrow. Now, for the third and last question, how does all of this shape the way we live together? If the church is, in fact, the bride of Christ, then we cannot honor Jesus if we disrespect his wife. Remember, the church is his body. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? You got something against my wife? You got something against me. He is intimately connected to his church, but so many Christians today think that they are honoring Jesus. They actually think, I'm honoring Jesus. I'm honoring Jesus by despising the church. I, I, you know, the church. I don't need that. I, I have Jesus. Jesus is enough for me. I have a relationship with Jesus. The church is full of hypocrites. The church is authoritarian. The church is shallow. The church is out of date. I don't need the church in order to love Jesus. Now, all right, try saying this to a good husband. Walk up to any good husband. Pick, take your pick. Walk up to a good husband and say to him, your wife is ugly. She's a nag. She's silly and, and shallow and 
She dresses like a grandma. I don't like being around your wife. Your wife is a bitch. But I really like you. You're great. I love being with you. You're my best friend. Can we hang out together? I really like being with you. What's coming next? If you have a shred of godliness left in you, men, right? Something's going to happen. Well, listen, Jesus is a better husband than any of us. And he's jealous for his bride. And you had better love her, and you had better honor her, and you had better respect her. Zechariah 2.8 For thus says the Lord of hosts, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So speaking of the church. You, you, you touch the church, you poke your finger in the church, you're poking your finger in the eyeball of God. And he doesn't like that. Paul uses another image for the church in First. Uh, Corinthians 3.17. But the warning is just as clear. Here's what he says. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Did you hear that? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. If anyone despises the, the church of God, God will despise him. God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his church. He's, he's jealous for his bride. We despise her at our own peril. As Tim said, love the church. Love her. Love her. Yeah. She can be a, what I said a minute ago. But God is Jesus is going to present her to himself holy and blameless, spotless, clean, and pure. Love her. Honor her. Or you will have a fight on your hands that you will not be able to win. May God have mercy on us. Because we don't even begin to know what it means to honor her. May God have mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us a great love for your bride, Lord Jesus. Make us love her. Make us glory to be a part of her. Make us, Lord, love you by loving her. Forgive us, Lord, for all the ways that we have failed in this. Open up our eyes to all the ways we continue to fail in it. Make us gladly, joyfully, wholeheartedly, willingly embrace and love the church, your bride. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.
For more resources like this, go to clearnutfellowship.org.